you have given us words to speak, to speak praise, to speak blessing to you, Lord. We praise you for who you are, and we stand in awe of you. And now, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you help us understand this passage of Scripture. Lord, this is your word to us. Help us, Lord, to contemplate. May it find lodging in our hearts that you might change us to be more like yourself. And we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. When you hear the word parable, what comes to your mind? Stories, yeah. Earthly stories, heavenly meaning, anything else? Riddles, okay, yeah. Training, yes, yes. You know, it's, it's Jesus telling stories pertain to the kingdom of God or in answering questions and, and those kinds of things. But there's another way that we can look at parable as well. In 1974, an eternity ago, there were three singers named Chuck and Pat and Joy. They brought their down-to-earth music to auditoriums, coffee houses, churches, and campuses in Southern California. This is on their website. In one uh, concert called the Inland Empire Concert, they were introduced as parable, these three. Now, they had toyed with several names, but that night, that name stuck and stuck with them ever since. And over the next several years, the band produced two albums. One was called, appropriately, Illustrations. On their website, even today, they describe their music like this. Diverse in style, timeless in lyric, and fit for edification, exhortation, and evangelism. What a refreshing description of music, of Christian music. And for me, it's a refreshing but far cry from the CCM music, what passes now for contemporary Christian music, a lot of it. You know, the commercialism and and even the watered-down messages that oftentimes go along with CCM. First time I heard parable, I was on Guam many years ago. Before Kitty and Ivy got married, I was in my dorm room, and I heard their album called Illustrations. Now, one of the last songs on this album, on this vinyl album, if you remember those back back in the day, uh, it was a song called Got to Decide. Now, the energy and the sense of urgency and the utmost seriousness of this song has deeply embedded my soul over the decades. Now, it's an evangelistic song, and some of the lyrics go like this. So many roads to follow. He said there's one. So many make-believers. He said, I've come. You can close your heart and say, I just don't want to hear. But turning off the Word of God won't make it disappear. You've got to decide if it's real or he's lying. And on it goes. Great music, simple, powerful words. But I can't think of a better way to start this message today than this challenging statement from parable addressed to the Corinthians. Corinthians, you've got to decide if it's real or he's lying. Will you believe the false teachers, these new kids on the block, or will you stick with the eternal gospel that Paul preached? He proclaimed Christ crucified. The false teachers simply did not. 
So in our passage for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, we're going to gain some further insight into Paul's pleading with those in the church in Corinth. Indeed, they are at a crossroads in their spiritual journey, to use that well-worn, somewhat PC phrase. But you know, the Corinthians began well. In what we call 1 Corinthians, as we know, more than just two letters were written to the Corinthians. The apostle reminds them of all that God offered them in Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. And he says this, I give thanks to my God always for you, for the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great beginning that the Corinthians had. Would you agree? See, I'm sure that the church in Corinth was the happening place to be in the town. I'm sure that when they got together for worship, they couldn't wait to come back together because they didn't know what was going to happen next. It was a very exciting place to be. All the spiritual gifts and those things going on, the manifestation of the Spirit, those things. And though they had all those great experiences, though, the Corinthians set themselves up for disaster. Now, great experiences, but seemingly they did not have much of an interest in developing a mature walk with the Lord. All they cared about were the experiences. But it didn't take too long until the real enemy, the devil, prompted his servants, the false teachers, to attack and bring the Corinthians to the brink of actually walking away from the Lord. And we call that terminology apostasy. I call it, I coined it, getting a divorce from Jesus. Now, if you you know, those who were not able to be here last week and didn't know what I'm talking about, if you didn't catch the message, go back and listen to it, and, and you'll hear what I'm, what I'm saying about this. Because I believe that we can get a divorce from Jesus. But today we're going to look at the Corinthians at the crossroads in verses 1 and 2 and 12 and 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're also going to see Paul and his fellow workers in the gospel telling the Corinthians about what happened to them because they too were at the crossroads many, many times in their experience with the Lord. And how applicable to us as well. For all of us come to the crossroads in our lives many, many times. Every time we encounter spiritual crossroads, we've got to decide, is it real or is he lying? And how we live our lives going forward reveals the answer to ourselves and to everybody else. So again, if you don't have it out yet, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to go through some of this. And we're going to start reading at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down to verse 12, because here we're going to talk about the Corinthians and what's going on with them. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
And then verse 12, you are not restricted by us, Corinthians, but you're restricted in your own affections. Now, these three verses come on the heels of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul just told the Corinthians, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See here, Paul, God is using Paul's mouth and his friends in calling the Corinthians back to himself. Basically, God is saying through the mouth of Paul, warning, you're out of sorts with me. Come on back, Corinthians. And then immediately the Corinthians hear it again, only worded a little bit differently this time. This time it's in the form of an appeal. This appeal, this urging, this imploring was done by Paul and company this time. The first time it was God using Paul's mouth. This time it was Paul himself speaking to the Corinthians. Now, this appeal, this imploring must have been difficult to hear, wouldn't you think? Because he said, don't receive the grace of God in vain. I can imagine the Corinthians doing a double take. Wait, what? What are you talking about, Paul? What do you mean, don't receive the grace of God in vain? We receive God's grace, Paul. We remember when you came into town and gave us the gospel. And to make matters even more interesting, Paul even couples his appeal in verse 1 to words that we usually equate with, with evangelism in verse 2. He said, at the end of verse 2, he says, now is the day of salvation. I think if I was in the church in Corinth, I might have a question or two of Paul. Whatever happened to the grace of God, Paul? What about some of the other things that you wrote to some of the other churches? Like, for example, in Romans 8, 38 and 39, where he says, where I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from Christ. Isn't that what you wrote, Paul, to the Romans? Is that a contradiction now, telling us not to receive the grace of God in vain? Or are you giving the Christians in Rome a little special treatment? Paul, why are you so hard on us? Well, let's go to that little word that Paul used in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 6, the word vain. This word literally means to no purpose or to have no effect or results. Now, this puts things in a little bit different light, I would think, especially in our day. You know, we hear words like, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've heard this. We know this. See in Ephesians, right? We understand that when we receive God's grace, we are saved now and forever. But we hear Paul telling the Corinthians that it is possible to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, the vain here, to receive it in vain is to have no effect that the grace would yield no results. But what this does, it highlights the vast difference between the way we so often understand and present the gospel here in 21st century America and what they were doing in 1st century. 
How often do people, for example, when they go sharing the gospel, they say something like this, hey, you know what? This Jesus guy, you know, he, he died on the cross and, and he paid for all your mistakes. And if you just believe in him, you'll go to heaven when you die. Well, one would hope that these kinds of presentations are getting fewer and farther between to make room for the true gospel. See, this kind of understanding will not prepare anyone for the coming onslaught of persecution that's coming to our shores, and it's even here right now. And it will not withstand the wrath of God that's coming. My point here is that in our brand of Christianity, here's what we normally do. We sometimes and oftentimes front load the grace of God, get them to pray a prayer, and then later on we tell them the fine print, if we ever tell them the fine print. See, there are many people who believe that we just simply just believe, believe Jesus to be our Savior, and then later on, we make a lordship decision to make Jesus our Lord. But I have a theological word for that, baloney. This is wrong on two accounts. First, of the gospel itself. See, the one that Jesus preached began with getting the pecking order straight. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. There was very little that Jesus said that was original with him. Did you know that? See, the vast majority of what Jesus actually said was taken from the Scripture. We call that the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there is the preaching of the gospel. For example, Isaiah 52, 7 is one of those places where the gospel is recorded twice. And here's what it says. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings what? Good news, that's gospel. Who publishes peace, who brings good news, that's gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says your God reigns. That's the gospel. The good news is that the true and living God reigns in the midst of all the sin and the chaos and wickedness of this world, whether it be way before the first century or even in the 21st century. How wonderful to know. It's our God who reigns, always has, and always will. Can I get an amen here? Right? As Lord, the true and living God provided salvation, though, for sinners through the sending of His Messiah. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place for our sins, rose again from the dead. He's now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for His people. One day He's going to come back. He's going to destroy His enemies, and He's going to reign and rule here on earth. And we will all give an account of our lives to Him. This is the flow of salvation. This is the gospel. And the second reason why this notion about just believing this Jesus guy is wrong, is that no one makes Jesus Lord. Did you know that? Guess why? Because He is Lord. When a person becomes a Christian, he or she is only acknowledging who he already is. And what this means for us on a practical level, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, on a practical level, everything we do, we're, we're either doing it in obedience to or in disobedience to our Lord. Makes things a little bit easier, doesn't it? Well, I'm kind of struggling. No, you're being disobedient to the Lord. Confess your sin and go on. 
Indeed, a far cry from a simple believe in this Jesus guy and you go to heaven. And you know, even when I say those words, it's like I'm almost sounding irreverent here because he's much more than this. Would you agree? But the Corinthians were at a crossroads in their spiritual lives. That's why Paul implored them to not treat the grace of God as something that will not produce salvation. But how can that be? How can it not produce salvation? Simply this way. Permanently following false teaching and false teachers renders the grace of God to have no effect in a person's life. In essence, Paul was giving a warning to the Corinthians in words similar that he gave to the church in Galatia. Remember, he was writing to the church in Galatia. And he says this in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 4, he says, You are severed from Christ, you who would seek to be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. If they fell away from grace, where were they in relation to grace? If they sought to get justified by something else, they fell away from grace. See, the true gospel brings with it eternal life. The power that raised Jesus from the dead invades the life of a disciple of Jesus. That person is changed. His or her allegiance is now pledged to Jesus. And as a result, two things go along with that followership. The first is the correct teaching about Christ as found in Scripture. And second, it's living out the grace that God describes in His Word. The Apostle John said this about all who would follow Christ and consider themselves Christians. Here's what he says in 2 John, verses 9 through 11. Anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. It's a cut and dry statement right here. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And then he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For whoever does this participates in his wicked words. Wow, that's not very kind, is it? Talk about fruit of the Spirit. It's not very kind to not even give people a greeting. But that's the way they work the culture back then. Seems kind of harsh, though, doesn't it? Especially coming from the pen of somebody who everybody referred to as the apostle of love. Now, as a pastor in Ephesus around 90 AD, and anytime the church members have a problem, he would tell them, children, love one another. No matter what it was, children, love one another. That's why he was called the apostle of love. And because he loved people, Paul told the truth. Jesus is the truth, and it's absolutely crucial that we believe in childlike faith everything that the Scripture talks about concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not be guilty of selective reading and putting on emphasis on different things. We need to have it all together here. Second is, I want us to turn to, to, to Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14, because we want to see here about the grace of God and what it is and how it works. The grace of God in Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. A true Christian will loyally, not perfectly, but loyally live out the grace of God 
as Paul describes it here in Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. I hope you've read this before, but this is incredible when you think about what grace really is and what grace really does. And here's what he says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is grace. All of that we just said is grace. That's what it is. Did you catch it? Did you absorb it? See, the one who has received God's grace automatically signs up for a lifelong discipleship training progress. Notice I said training. I didn't say perfection. I said training. The Christian practices righteousness in that he or she renounces ungodliness and worldly passions. This is what a Christian does. Training to do this. The true Christian is in training to live a self-controlled and upright and godly life in the here and now. One who is born again has oriented his or her life around the anticipation of Christ's return and his or her future redemption. And the Christian rolls up his or her sleeves and actively and actually trains themselves to produce good works with enthusiasm and godly zeal. This is what the grace of God looks like, according to the truth of the gospel. But tragically, whether it's false teaching about the truth of God and the gospel of Christ, or a commitment to a lifestyle that basically says, hey, I've got freedom. I can do what I want. Persons who live this way but claim to be a Christian are lying to themselves and to everyone else around them. Simply put, being a Christian means, by definition, we live a brand new way of life to the glory of God. Now, the Corinthians were getting swayed by false teachers. They were beginning to loosen their grip on the truth of Christ and the real understanding of grace. See, Paul had not moved from his preaching of Christ and salvation found in God's grace, but the Corinthians were at a crossroads, and Paul was beckoning them, come back, be reconciled to God and us. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. And how do we know that the false teachers were having an effect on this? Why would it prompt Paul to say what he said? Again, verse 12, he says, you are being restricted. You are not restricted by us, but you are being restricted in your own affections. It seems as though Paul was saying to the Corinthians, it looked like you were beginning to follow them. You were restricted in your own affection toward us. Children, as Paul called them children, because he became their father through the gospel. He says, open your affection toward us. There's a wall between us. The false teachers probably would say, there's that big, beautiful wall between you and Paul. You Corinthians are holding yourself aloof 
from us. Now, this wall that the Corinthians were building between themselves and Paul would eventually result in a broken relationship, a broken fellowship between them and the Corinthians uh, and, and Paul, unless it was dismantled quick, fast, and in a hurry. See, Jesus told us in John 17, 23, that unity, it's interesting that our prayer, our ministry highlight of the week is unity. Unity among his disciples is the most powerful witness that we as Christians can give to the world. We know this. Here's what Jesus requested of the Father right before he went to the cross. He says, Father, I want them to be unified. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It's a good reminder for us as well in our day, isn't it? There's a lot of false teaching about Jesus. Would you agree with this? And living a holy life, what's that? How many people leave solid church fellowships because of their own sin? Or because another church down the street has more and better programs for the kids? Or the preacher is more to one's liking? Or even the building looks better than the one that they're in? Or a whole host of reasons? Again, Jesus told us that the greatest witness we can give the world is our unity. If Christians leave the fellowship for less than good reasons, then how can the world see our unity? As it's been said, our job is not to make the world a better place. The church's job is not for human flourishing. Our job is to be the better place in the local church, to let the world know there's a better way to live, the way of Jesus. But if the world can't see the better way, if they can't see it if we refuse to live in love and unity. But having seen the Corinthians at the crossroads and their spiritual danger, let's now take a look at what Paul continually did. He and his friends, when he came to the multiple crossroads that they encountered in their lives. Let's look at this at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. I find something strange here in this section. Paul starts out by giving Two statements that seem to contradict themselves. First, he says, he and his co-workers are servants of God. And then second, he said, we commend ourselves. Now, not about you, but it seems strange to me to say, I'm a servant and I commend myself. But Paul had a reason for this. And to further complicate matters, before he actually begins his commendation, he tells the Corinthians, why he's listing these things in the first place. In verse 3, he says, the last thing he wanted to do was to bring discredit upon the ministry in the eyes of the Corinthians. And maybe perhaps in the back of his mind, he was thinking what, were the, what the false teachers were doing was bring discredit upon themselves for trying to steal away the hearts and minds of the Corinthians with their false teaching. See, Paul was in a spiritual wrestling match over the souls of these Corinthians and he was willing to do anything to win them back. And so as we go through these, these experiences that Paul had, this self-commendation of Paul and his co-laborers as servants of God, we can see them saying something like this. Hey, Corinthians, those false teachers have nothing on us. 
It's almost as if Paul and company were in competition for a job of spiritual leadership with the Corinthians. And they were submitting their resume here. Which candidate would be best to lead them? Would it be them or would it be the false teachers? Now, in this massive list of experiences and character qualities, Paul and his co-workers, they pulled out all the stops and laid before the Corinthians as to whom was best qualified to lead them spiritually. But this list isn't a sterile thing, though, because they knew who Paul was. These weren't strangers to them. See, Paul himself was often at the crossroads, especially from the first day he became a Christian, his very first experience as following Christ. See, his Christian experience began with a three-day stint of being blind. As Paul was on his way to Damascus to put as many as he could into jail in his right before he became a Christian. When Christ knocked him down to the ground, though, and he said, Lord, who are you? Lord, what would you have me to do? He got up, but he was not able to see. After the Lord used a brother named Ananias to heal him, then Paul was like a man who was born blind. He wanted to give his testimony. So what did he do? The first thing he did, he went to the synagogue in Damascus and told them about Jesus, who Christ was that he indeed was the son of God. Well, Paul was not well received there, and he got wind of a plot on his life. And so the brothers then helped Paul escape from Damascus. Well, he fled to Jerusalem, probably thinking, hey, I've got some refuge here. Well, guess what? He began to preach. They didn't like him there either. They were going to kill him there too. And so what did the brothers do? Helped him escape Jerusalem, and he went back to his hometown. In Tarsus, and on and on, crossroad after crossroad. At every turn, he may have been thinking about something like this. Is this real or is he lying? At every turn, in the face of one episode of opposition after another, he said, yes, he is real, absolutely. Like Peter before him, when Jesus asked him and the rest of the apostles, do you go away too? It's like the thousands who just did. And what did Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So with that said, let me just list some of these things that Paul has put on his resume. Give me, let me give you a couple of occasional comments as he describes his self-commendation to the Corinthians in verses 4 to 10. Paul says, we commend ourselves by great endurance, the capacity to bear up under difficult circumstances, in afflictions, in troubles, and suffering in general. And this trouble had oftentimes come to him because now this new religion that Paul was kind of leading, it was now affecting the whole empire and even Caesar himself. Paul continues down his list with calamities, difficult circumstances that just come along with the territory of being a human being. And then Paul lists some of the things that happened to him by those who didn't exactly appreciate his ministry, beginning with the beatings. He doesn't say how many beatings he encountered, but undoubtedly there were a lot. And then came along with the imprisonments, and that came along with the beatings. Think Philippi and the jailer. Remember when Paul and Silas were beaten, and they were thrown into the jail. 
and their feet were fastened in the inner stocks after they were beaten severely. Paul continues, how about the riots? He was the center of attention when it came to the riots. Paul proclaimed the truth, and his ministry was met with violence by the very ones who they proclaimed the truth to. Violence done to them was their reward. Labors, Paul says. It's another item on Paul's servant leader resume. He not only preached the gospel, he also had to support himself by getting enough money to feed himself. But really, who'd want to hire somebody who was starting riots? There were many sleepless nights for Paul, as many as, as not, and also many days he had to go without eating. Now, he wasn't fasting in those days. He just didn't have any money to eat with. You know, as expression goes, Paul was as poor as a church mouse. Paul now begins to share his character qualities, beginning with purity, literally a clean heart, not just in the realm of sexual purity, but many godly attitudes are toward those who mistreated them. He did not seek revenge. He continued to serve them up the true gospel, even as he heard the hateful things given by his enemies. Paul displayed a great deal of knowledge, kind of like a street smart thing. Yeah, Paul understood what was going on. And of course, he was very brilliant in the things of God. Patience was another virtue that Paul highlighted on his spiritual resume. With all that went on in his Paul's life, he was emotionally calm when people got in his face and tried to provoke him. And even when circumstances did not work out over and over again, he was patient. Patience, patience showed up in his life as he didn't complain. He didn't display irritation because patience literally means long used. Kindness was something else on Paul's resume. He did these things as a matter of course. He was kind to people. He had an others-centered attitude, even when others didn't treat him so kindly. It's like when Paul would get beat up and he would tell them, have a nice day. Now, this kind of thing actually happened with a guy like, for example, Richard Wormbrandt. When he was in prison in Romania for 14 years for his faith in Christ, in his book, Torture for Christ, here's what he wrote. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us, so everybody was happy. Imagine this. Paul then lists the Holy Spirit on his resume. Literally, the apostle refers to the things that the Holy Spirit produces. Here he's proclaiming the Holy Spirit is alive and well and living in his life. And part of how Paul shows the Holy Spirit living in him is the genuine love and truthful speech and the power of God flowing out of him. And oftentimes, he would not take into account the wrongs suffered from him from his enemies, and he would refuse to take revenge on them. And then Paul describes the reality of his engagement in spiritual warfare and tells it this way, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Righteousness, Paul says, is a weapon. He wrote about this very thing in Romans chapter 6. It's a very powerful passage where Paul actually describes presenting the members of his body as an instrument or a weapon of righteousness. Paul literally used his hands to do good things, to do righteous things 
as weapons, as instruments of righteousness. In other words, the actions that Paul displayed showed everyone that the Lord was his Lord. The Lord was his Lord. Truly, he was dead to sin and alive to God, and his actions showed this. Now, Paul's resume includes several all-encompassing experiences. The first, he says, verse 2, is through honor and dishonor and through slander and praise. So regardless of whether he lived, whether his life for Jesus brought curses or commendation, it didn't matter. He was going to live for the one who died for him and rose again. Paul was a new creature in Christ. He was crucified to the world, and the world was crucified to him. He no longer lived for man's applause, and he did not shrink back from doing God's will due to man's disapproval. Paul's list of life experiences includes the reality of feeling the sting of being labeled as an imposter, a purveyor of fake news about the things of God. But Paul knew he was speaking the truth. Paul continues to say that in his estimation, they served the Lord in obscurity. We are treated as unknown, yet as well known. We look at Paul now as this giant of a man in the things of God, don't we? We think about how great he was. But in his day, who was Paul? He's cast aside, beaten up a lot, thrown in jail numerous times. Now, certainly there were pockets of people he affected. And through his writings, he's affected millions of people down through the ages. But he did not have empire-wide notoriety then, did he? Even when he was martyred, there was no fanfare there. He didn't die as a national hero, but he was well-known to God and those whom he had the privilege of serving for Jesus' sake. Paul's realistic portrait of himself continues. We are treated as those who are dying, and yet, behold, we live. Paul's perception of the world and how they treated him is that because of all of his troubles and his scars, that he could just lay down and die at any moment. That's what he looked like. And Paul says, You may think that we're dying, but yet we live. We are treated as those who are punished, yet not killed. Paul's many enemies brought about great punishment because he dared to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. But he was, as is often said, God's servants are indestructible to God calls them home. Paul walked in that assurance. Paul's next item on his spiritual leadership resume is to present to the Corinthians as We're always treated as those who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, Paul certainly hears the voice of those who marvel at him. Paul, how can you rejoice when you're going through all this stuff? And Paul basically said, he he followed his own advice that he wrote to the Philippians when he said, I rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'm going to say it, I rejoice. I rejoice in him, not my circumstances. Close to the end of his resume, Paul declares his physical poverty, but spiritual richness. We are treated as those who are poor, yet making many rich. This reminds me of what Peter told the lame man at the gate. Beautiful. When he said, silver and gold, I don't have any of that. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And finally, Paul says, we are treated as those as having nothing, yet possessing everything. No possessions that others would be envious of. Paul didn't have anything. But what else could and would Paul want? 
Reminds me what Corrie Ten Boom's description of her life and her experiences, especially during a concentration camp. You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Paul said he suffered the loss of all things and counted everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. He counted everything he once had as rubbish, garbage, dung, in order to gain Christ. See, truly, Christ was to Paul that priceless pearl that he gladly traded everything in so that he can gain him. Quite the list, don't you think? You tell me, who could stand up to that kind of a resume? But as with anything, a resume takes time, doesn't it? Little by little, decision after decision, one episode of denying self after another, and all that together made up Paul's incredible list of life experiences to the glory of God. He was well qualified to lead them. What do you think? And then Paul lays his heart on the line. Though he gave his list of strengths and achievements and character qualities and all the rest, forged through the fires and brought to the crossroads time after time, Paul basically says, you know what? All this here really doesn't matter if you remain closed to us and your affections. Our heart is wide open to you. Children, return. Open wide your heart to us. We are unashamedly asking you to return. Open yourself to us. And as we know, within a relationship that we value highly, there are times when we have to become vulnerable. Isn't that right? We must run the risk of being rejected. Paul's appeal to the Corinthians is his moment of vulnerability. How would the Corinthians respond? It's open-ended here. The Scripture leaves us hanging at this point. But you know what? We don't have to be left hanging when it comes to our relationship with the Lord or with His people or with the truth. See, with us, just like the Corinthians, just like Paul, we all come to the crossroads in our lives many times. And every time we do, we have to decide, is it real or is he lying? Think of the devastating times and things that come into our lives, into your life. When was the last devastating thing to happen? Is Christ enough? Is he enough? During those times, is the Lord trustworthy? Is it real or is he lying to you? The things you consider as good, on the other hand, are they gifts from the Lord? Or did you get them because of your abilities or skill or charm? Think about the big questions such as, how did I get here? Who am I? Where am I going? What is my purpose in life? See, the Lord tells us these answers to all these questions and much more in His Word. Is He real or is He lying? Even when the world tells us all these things at 180 degrees out of phase to what God's Word says. But you know, a funny thing about crossroads, once we make a decision to go down one path, we got to take all of us with us, don't we? We can't physically go down one path while we mentally and emotionally go down another path. We got to take all of us with us because 
We are complete persons, including our will, our, our emotions, and our minds. And as Christians, God has called us to swim upstream like salmon. See, anybody can go with the current, even dead fish. Parable song, Got to the Side, applies to all of us. Let the lyrics challenge us as I close this message. The rest of the lyrics go something like this. The river is high. The water is flowing. Along for the ride. Which way are you going today? You know there ain't no halfway-hearted compromise. You're giving all to either one or the other side. You got to the side. So many roads to follow. He said, there's one. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And all of us who have claimed you as Lord and Savior, we long to live on that path. Lord, oftentimes, We have been distracted. We hear the siren song of the world, and we get tempted to go that way. We hear false teaching. We hear how it's 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 so much fun, you know, and and you can just just have a fit for yourself with so many places and with so many churches and, and with so many false teachings. Lord Jesus, you told us that the way of discipleship, which is the only way that you deal with your people as disciples, not converts. You told us something about denying ourselves, taking up our crosses daily and following you. Lord, it's not easy, but it's worth it. Lord Jesus, you died for us that we might die to ourselves and live for righteousness. Lord, you tell us in your word, by your stripes we are healed. So Lord, I pray that you help us to understand more fully about what grace really means, that we would, in childlike faith, understand the teaching of you in your word. Help us to accept all of it and not to be guilty of selective reading. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help us, lead us, guide us as we follow you wholeheartedly because we're grateful for what you've done for us because you loved us first. And I'll thank you, Lord, as we turn our attention to our singing and to our giving. I pray that you will help us to do these things as acts of worship because, Lord, you alone deserve it. And we will give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name.